And welcome to episode 148 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky in this podcast as for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. The podcast we're doing today is going to be the second part of the uh, class for the stars and planets of, of summer. Um, I did a two-week class, and, uh, and this, this is sort of like the second class in a way, but, uh, you know, the, several of the students had asked for the class notes, or they had asked for um, a copy of the presentation, or maybe if it could be recorded um, during our session, and we can't do that at the university for privacy reasons, which is fine, because Shane has kindly agreed to to join me for a couple of these, and then we can kind of run through them and uh, put them out for our listeners and and for anybody in the class that uh, that wish to have uh, the content um, sort of in a in a format that they could listen to or uh, or consume outside of the class time. So thanks for uh, doing this with me, Shane. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. So as mentioned, this is our this is the second one, and uh, what we're uh, what we're talking about mostly in this one is, is Jupiter and Saturn. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, meteorites and, and comets uh, towards the end. But in the, in the last class or in the last podcast that we did on this, which was uh, podcast 147, um, one of the things that, that we talked about was digging out um, a pair of binoculars. If people haven't used binoculars on the night sky before, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing what you can see uh, in binoculars. Did you have your binoculars out recently, Shane? You got a little pair recently, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I have those uh, uh, Bushnell, they're classic binoculars um, and, and often referred to as miniature binoculars. It's uh, a Bushnell Broadfield 6x25 uh, and it's an 11 degree field of view. So nice. they're, they're decent. Uh, the eye relief is really tight, but they're, they're a fun little binocular to play with. Yeah, so my binoculars are seven by thirty-five. I've had them for for years. They've traveled all over the world with me, and uh, they're they're great because uh, well, they're not too expensive. They're not as expensive as a telescope. Um, most people who are getting into astronomy, um, well, learning the stars and constellations and how all that stuff works is uh, is challenging enough, really, without trying to learn all that and learn how to use a telescope. Um, so that's why we, we tend to recommend the binoculars to start. And then if, uh, if people don't end up liking astronomy as much as you and I do, which I, I can't imagine, but that happens, then <laughs> when they, they've, uh, they've bought a good pair of binoculars or they've got a, a decent pair of binoculars, which can be used for all kinds of, uh, different things. But, uh, one of the other things that, uh, that I go through in my class, Shane, I'm not sure if you've used these much before is the skymaps.com, um, resource it's it's sky maps that are put out each month have you ever looked at this i've looked at it uh, to be honest i really haven't used it much um but i i have checked it out on occasion it's it's a pretty good resource it's it's really you know it's great uh, that it doesn't cost anything and and it really is a you know provides good information for people observing yeah the the information that i really like for people that are just getting started in astronomy is that it tells you where the moon is going to be um, on, on most, like not every night of the month, but on many nights of the month when it's going to be near, um, like a bright star or a planet, um, or in a, you know, like in a particular spot on the sky. And, and what people can do with that information is, uh, they can use the moon to help guide them through the sky. So like most people are familiar, most people are familiar or can learn a couple constellations. Typically people are going to find that the pattern of the big dipper, um, which kind of looks like a saucepan or, or whatever. Um, and, and that's the main set of stars that are in the constellation of Ursa Major. And then soon after, they might find the North Star, which is just uh, three-fifths or 30 degrees up from the Bull Stars. We talked about it in the last one. And they're able to trace out the uh, Ursa Minor set of stars, which is like a smaller version of the Big Dipper. And then nearby, we have um, Cassiopeia, and uh, that's sort of on one side. And on the other side, we have uh, boots. And we talked about how to find boots in the last uh, podcast. Um, but then, you know, you found maybe three or four uh, constellations. Typically in the winter, people are able to find Orion or learn to find Orion. And there might be hand 
beautiful of other ones people find. But by using that moon as it goes through the sky every month, um, you can find more stars and more constellations. Um, and it really kind of kind of helps people out. And then um, Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson. What are your thoughts on the book Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson, Shane? Well, we've talked about it uh, quite a few times on previous podcasts. It's, uh, you know, it's one of our most recommended books, especially for new folks. Um, and it's, it gives you all the basics, you know, where to find the constellations and then some prominent objects within those constellations. And uh, it's probably the best resource uh, to get you started. Yeah. When I, I don't, I don't say this every time, but, but often when I teach my class, I say people, you know, one of the, one of the biggest questions is like, how do I get going in all this? Um, you know, people have recognized a few stars and planets and constellations. Maybe they've enjoyed a view of the Milky Way, um, but they really want to get going. And I'm like, the only thing you need is, uh, is a copy of uh, Nightwatch, a red flashlight, um, and, and just that old pair of binoculars that, you know, is around the house somewhere. Uh, just start there because um, learning the night sky and using those three tools um, are going to really... Um, tell you whether or not you like doing astronomy because when I started now I had different different ideas of what I wanted to do then and and they evolved into other other paths um, but when I started um, you know somebody gave me a pair of binoculars and I was kind of disappointed you know I, I I always associated telescopes with astronomy not uh, you know not like in my in my mind like a pair of binoculars like what the heck binoculars and astronomy it was seemed like oil and water to me i don't know how was your introduction to binoculars shane um yeah like i i I skipped that phase to be honest i went straight (laughs) to a telescope um and uh then after using so that was an eight inch newtonian after using that for a little while um like i my biggest struggle was identifying like where things were in the sky and like prominent stars and other stars to hop to. And uh, so then I ended up buying a pair of, I think it was 10 by fifties. They were recommended uh, by Terrence Dickinson at the time um, in uh, the backyard astronomer's guide. And uh, those were, those became like part of my setup. I would have those on a tripod beside my eight inch Newtonian. And I used the binoculars really just to scan the area of the sky that I wanted to observe in. And it just helped me, it helped give me my bearings, so to speak, as to where everything was. And the nice thing with binoculars versus my Newtonian was that everything that I looked at was like, uh, you know, left, right, up, down, corrected, meaning things weren't reversed. Whereas, you know, a Newtonian left, right, or reversed up, downs, reversed, like everything's a mess and you have to do, you know, mental gymnastics to interpret your, your star charts. Yeah. Yeah. And and so yeah and that's that's great so you you eventually did get a pair but you you had a slightly different path than i did mm-hmm. um and and everybody has their own path in this and you know uh, try not to idealize any any one way of of doing it uh but i think uh, if people are looking to get going um that uh, that getting the binoculars first that can that can definitely be a, be a great avenue uh we also talked about the moon and and if you've never looked at the moon through a pair of binoculars before, um, go and do that. This is a, a great week to do it. You can get up after midnight uh, or go out in the early morning and take a look at it um, before sunrise. And you'll see uh, lots of craters uh, cutting along the shadow line on the moon, which we call the Terminator. Speak of uh, lines in, in the sky, Shane, um, I don't know about you, but one thing that I learned much later that I probably should have um, was the meridian as as an important line in the sky. Um, I'm not sure. Did did you learn about the meridian earlier in your astronomy or or later in your astronomy uh, path? Definitely later. The only thing that I really... Uh, learned early on was the ecliptic. Um, yeah. And then, you know, all these other concepts, uh, you know, meridian and zenith and all that other stuff kind of came later on as I continued to do more observing, right? And then that other stuff, uh, you, you read about it and, you know, well, what, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah. And then I uh, started to learn a little bit more. Yeah. So some of the things are a little bit more useful than others. Um, and the one thing that I think is, is very useful for people is the meridian. 
and you don't hear that talked about uh, as much. And all the meridian is, it's very simple. It is the point here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, it's the point looking south that is where stuff gets to its highest point in the night sky. So if you have a planet like uh, Jupiter, you were talking about Jupiter um, before, I think in the last, uh, in one of our other recordings, um, and, and, it, and it's rising right now just as the sun is setting because we're just past opposition. And then it sets just as the, uh, just as the sun is coming up in the morning sky. Um, but the point around midnight or so is when Jupiter is going to be at its highest in the nighttime sky. And when it's at its highest, it's going to be highest above south. And that point, that line that goes directly from overhead to directly beneath your feet, that line that cuts through there is called the meridian, where stuff uh, culminates. We say it culminates at the meridian. It's at its highest point. And why that's important and why I, I start with this as an important point with people is that even, even us, we, we got pretty far in astronomy before we realized the importance of this. And I, I often will go out with people that have done astronomy for a couple of years, like two or three years, and, and they'll be looking through the trees trying to get an object that is setting in the West, or they're trying to get like, like a globular cluster, an open cluster, or a galaxy, and they're getting frustrated. Or they're trying to look at one that's just rising in the East. Uh, meanwhile, um, for example, like, and I've done this in the summer, <coughs> and then the Milky Way is cutting right through overhead. And, you know, it's going to, and Sagittarius and Scorpius are at their highest points, which, you know, th these are um, objects of great focus. These are constellations of great focus for us as, uh, as observers, because there's a lot of stuff in there, globular clusters, open clusters, nebulae, all this stuff is in there. And then I'll be out with uh, you know, some dude, he's looking through the trees trying to get, you know, a galaxy and uh, Canis Venetici or, or something like that. Why are you looking at that? Like, look at that in the spring. Right now we have the summer Milky Way, and, but they've, they've got it into their minds that they have to get this object for whatever, whatever reason, but they're not, they're not planning their observing around the meridian. And then I go out with them two months later or three months later around, you know, um, Halloween, and they're looking in the weeds, trying to get stuff in Sagittarius. And I'm just like, oh man, <laughs> like and the reason why that impacts your astronomy is that one, when things are low, they're more difficult to see. Cause you're like, you know, you might be dealing, you're going to deal with more obstructions on the horizon. Mm -hmm. A and then B you're looking through more atmosphere. Things are turbulent. And then C when things are just above the horizon, especially when they're setting. And that's commonly what I see people doing is they're trying to get the stuff just before it sets. And, and you're working with these really narrow timeframes. Oh, it's only going to be up for an hour after the sun goes down. So they're dealing with twilight. It's, it's going to be in the worst part of the atmosphere. It's just a bad situation. So the meridian, that's where you want to focus for astronomy if you, if you get into this. All right, moving on. So we have the uh, zenith is the point directly overhead. And then um, that comes through to the point directly um, below you. And... Uh, and, and the point in between is called the meridian. The highest point in the south is the meridian. We have the Earth's equator projected onto the night sky. That's the celestial equator. You see that on a lot of stuff, but sort of in practice, the celestial equator doesn't really, like it's not really something that we use as visual astronomers, is it? I mean, maybe you use it, but I, I assume no. the celestial equator. Yeah, no, it, it really doesn't. To me, it doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't impact what I'm looking at or determine what I will look at. So it's uh, yeah. it's irrelevant to me. Yeah, it's more like a, a determining factor in like uh, celestial mechanics of when things are going to be above and below the equator and the seasons and all that kind of stuff. It's it's interesting to read about and whatever, but as as a practical application on the nighttime sky, like we never go out and try to find the celestial equator really. There's a few things that you might do to find that, but I don't know. There, they would be more advanced things than than what mm -hmm. a beginner needs to know. And then you mentioned this: the the ecliptic is is somewhat important, um, but really just being able to find the planets versus find out um, where the path of the planets is is the important bit. Like we don't really use the ecliptic 
more or less we just look at stuff that's in it right mm -hmm. yeah so, yeah it's, it's yeah it, it's it's more just to look at stuff in it and and maybe you know if you're trying to find something like mercury which is challenging at times you can use the ecliptic in a way like an imaginary line to get a, a bit of a ballpark where you you know you should be looking yeah and all the ecliptic is it's just the path of the planets in the sky and all the planets and the moon and, and the sun they more or less follow um the same path through the sky but again we we don't heavily use it and uh and even like a few nights ago i was looking for venus and Venus is actually pretty far south on the ecliptic right now. So it's not really due west when the sun sets. It's sort of south of west or in the southwestern um, evening sky. Um, so I was like, oh, like I know it's Venus because I've observed Venus a lot. But even kind of knowing the ecliptic and, and some other things, it's, it's really the practical uh, observing experience, which, which will help you find um, the planets. And I, I talked about the zenith being the point directly overhead. Um, and we talked uh, a little bit about the meridian here, but we didn't talk about uh, altitude and a zenith or, or the celestial grid system. Shane, should we, should we tell people about the celestial grid system and how to use it? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I think we could pass that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing I, I, I've taught these classes and probably about every third or fourth class, um, somebody will bring in a chart or, or, or send me a chart and they'll say that all this is fine and good, but how do I use this thing? And I'm like, you don't need to. Um, you just need to learn the patterns of the stars and kind of how the sky works. You don't need to learn like right ascension and declination and um, altitude and seeing you know, like all this stuff, all these different things. Um, they are going to complicate things for beginners, even though it seems like it would be a very important thing to know. Um, you know, and some people, um, they're better at learning that kind of stuff than others. Like for me, I'm not. Um, our frequent observing pal, Mike, he actually, I think, knows the celestial grid. Um, he would be sort of a rare bird that, that knows, like if I point at something, he can, he can rough estimate the right ascension and declination and, and be pretty bang on. Um, I'm pretty impressed by that. I wish I could do it a little bit better, but it's not necessary in my opinion. Yeah. The, the only thing that I really use right ascension and declination for is, you know, you, you have a list of objects and it'll have the coordinates. I'll use those coordinates to find it on the star chart. And then, you know, I start star hopping and working my way towards, uh, the object in the sky. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And some people might, some people might get into learning the celestial grid a little bit more, but, uh, but I would say leave that for now. It's more, more advanced. So let's move on and talk about um, some of the other planets uh, in the solar system. Talk a little bit about uh, meteorites and, uh, and comets a little bit. In, in the episode 147, we talked about the terrestrial planets. Um, so we're going to move along. And those terrestrial planets are Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Um, so if you want to hear about those, you can go back to episode 147. In this one, we're going to talk about uh, mostly about Jupiter and Saturn, the gas giants. I, I did have Uranus and Neptune uh, in this, but I, I do think it, it makes it a little bit long. And uh, these are really about what you can see in the sky. And I think Uranus and Neptune are a little bit more uh, challenging. If you do want to see them, you can actually um, download the skymaps.com maps every month. And it will tell you when the moon is nearby them. And that's going to give you your best guide to finding them. Or you can go to a, like a good website like skyandtelescope.com. And when, uh, when the moon or something else is going to be near um, Uranus or Neptune, to point it out to you, um, that that's, that's how you hunt those ones down. But, uh, but they're just going to really look like stars. But Jupiter and Saturn, um, they do really look like something. And you can really see them quite easily naked eye from the city. So... Jupiter and Saturn, they're made up mostly of uh, molecular hydrogen and, and in, in the interior, um, metallic hydrogen. There's some helium and methane. Um, they do have some ammonia and methane ices. Um, and they have very far down, they have rocky cores. But I don't think you'd ever get to those rocky cores, Shane, if you parachuted in. <laughs> Probably not. No, I don't, I don't think you'd make it. So in... Uh, in the in the orbit of Jupiter, this is sort of one of the one of the things that um, I think people find interesting. I know I did is that 
it takes about 12 years for Jupiter to go around the sun. And because of that, it spends about a year-ish in each of the zodiacal constellations like uh, uh, Scorpius, Sagittarius, Capricornus, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, and so that's kind of neat. So, so every year it's more or less going to be in a new constellation. Um, it does pass through the 13th sign of Ophiuchus um, for a brief uh, spell uh, during that period of time. So I don't know if you know this about me, Shane, but I was actually born under the 13th sign. The sun was in Ophiuchus when I was born. I did not know that. There you go. <laughs> it, it explains absolutely nothing because we don't believe in astrology. Okay, moving on. Um, in 1610, Galileo discovered four large moons of Jupiter, now known as the Galilean moons. But I think, didn't he want to name them after like uh, one of the Medicis or, or one of the royalty of, of Italy when he discovered them? It was something like that. Yeah, it could be. I, I don't know that story. Yeah, but... Uh, he was able to, to track these and sketch them out and discover, of course, that uh, not everything revolves around us. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Exactly. Um, so a little footnote is that Simon Marius, I think he was a British uh, early astronomer, um, very soon after he independently discovered those moons uh, around Jupiter too, um, but he didn't publish until, uh, until much later in 1614. So the old publish or perish or be forgotten, um, definitely applied there. Um, and, and so he, he likely was, uh, was observing, uh, the moons around the same time that, uh, that Galileo was and, and had made those, those independent, uh, discoveries of Io Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. So kind of skipping ahead to those, uh, planets are, I always want us to call them planets. So with these moons of Jupiter, they almost, they almost kind of look, when you look at the photo of them here, Shane, on slide 16, they almost look like planets of their own right, eh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like there's, if they were closer to earth, um, so that, you know, modest amateur telescopes visually, uh, could capture or, or show some of the detail, they would be incredible things to look at. And they're quite dynamic too. Um, at least, uh, which one is it? The, uh, the one on the far left that. Io. It looks like, yeah, Io. Um, you know, there's a lot of volcanic activity there um, that, you know, is changing the surface pretty regularly and it would be really cool to observe. Yeah, Io has all these uh, volcanoes spotted all over its surface. It looks like a yellowish, orange, sulfurous bulb and it's uh, it's pockmarked with like these white fissures and, and, and holes, black holes in it. Um, it just looks like a world out of Star Trek, like the original series kind of thing. I'm not a big Star Trek fan, so I'm kind of just throwing that out. But it just it just looks like like something you would see in a sci-fi movie. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that, that's a good description. And then we have Europa, which is an ice world, which may have uh, a liquid ocean down there somewhere. Um, and it's got a bit of a ruddy, rusty... Uh, color over much of the ice surface and then the other ice surface is kind of like a bluey gray um, and it's constantly being resurfaced and then um, so that's Europa and then we have uh, Callisto and uh, Ganymede which which are I think they, they have a combination of, of rock and ice um, and they look more like our moon but I don't know they, they're I think they're, they're still much different looking one is super dark and pockmarked with white dots and one is sort of uh, whitish with larger uh, dark markings, almost like like our moon is, but um, I believe they're they're quite a bit larger uh, than our own moon. So, if you look at Jupiter uh, through a pair of binoculars, I think I think that'll probably give you um, a pretty good view of what uh, of what Galileo saw through his telescope, wouldn't it? It's about like that, isn't it? Yeah, I would think so. Like you know, the the Galilean moons would be very apparent. Um... But he was able to resolve a little bit of detail on Jupiter, I believe, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he, he noted that there were some markings or something like that, or maybe mm. like a, a line or something. Definitely um, far, far less detailed than what, than what we're seeing. Of course, he wasn't using a binocular. He was using, I think it was like about a 26 millimeter, but like a one inch uh, telescope. And I think he was using around 
between like 50 and maybe, or sorry, 15 and 50 power. I think you had a few uh, different eyepieces in there. Um, I've actually, I've actually seen the telescope that uh, that made those discoveries. I've I've stood in the presence of the of the original glass crack, though it may be. Hmm, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, you can go and see it. It's in the uh, Museum de Galileo in Florence, Italy. Um, and if people go, there's two places they should go. So there's now this whole Galileo Museum. And there's, there's two parts to that. Um, there's the public part, and then there's the archive. Um, like going into the archive won't really serve you uh, well because, you know, everything's in, in Latin. Um, so unless you speak Latin or whatever, like, like there's a lot of books and ancient uh, astronomical texts that are in there. Um, I kind of just, you know, did take a quick look and I kind of researched it before I went and didn't, didn't make applications. You have to apply to, to go into the room. Um, but I did see the room. Um, it's cool, but, uh, anyway, um, but it's very neat to go to just the public museum. I went there two or three times and, uh, you can, uh, you can walk around and see all his instruments. They have a lot of other telescopes that are in there too. Um, they're very large and they're beautifully anointed. They almost look like, um, super crazy, fancy custom, um, Christmas paper wrapping tubes is kind of what they look like, but, <laughs> but they're, they're much, they're much more than that. Um, if you're familiar with boat building, they have like ribs, they have like ribs and, uh, and long planks, like, but on a very small scale, they're, they're built like ships almost. Um, the attention to detail, both uh, mechanically and, uh, and, and aesthetically is, uh, is quite astounding. Um so anyway, so, so that's what that's what they were using. And, uh, you know, the neat part about Jupiter is it's kind of like a failed star. Eh? I think if it was a few times larger, it would have actually begun to fuse hydrogen itself and and become uh, like another, you know, we would basically have lived in a binary star system. I think, isn't that the story? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, there's, there's, I guess I... I don't know all the research behind it, but I, I, I believe that that's kind of the um, understood theory that, yeah, failed star. And um, it would have been, I guess it would be pretty interesting to live in a binary system. I wonder what that would have meant for us. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I was, I was telling my wife, but at last name, we were looking at Jupiter and, uh, and in, in the diagram there on, on slide 18, um, you can actually see that, that in the, in the top left, uh, quadrant. Um, we have the sun and then we have uh, Jupiter and then we have earth and earth is just a dot Jupiter. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think, uh, you can put, I think it's like 10 or 11 Jupiters uh, sort of stretched across the surface of the sun. And that kind of gives you an idea of the size of the sun compared to Jupiter. Um, and then I think you can actually fit about uh, 10 or 11 Earths across the surface of, of Jupiter. So it's kind of this, um, this comparable scale that Jupiter is that much smaller than the sun as Earth is that much smaller than, um, than Jupiter. So yeah, it's kind of it's neat to sort of think about that. It's sort of like partway in between um, you know, where we are in size and, uh, and where the sun is, the sun being you know, several... Uh, much, much larger than either of those uh, two planets. Did you know there's aurora on Jupiter? Yes, yes. Um, is that, can we see that visually with a telescope? No, I don't think so. Because mm. like, if we think about it, theoretically, it would be impossible <laughs> because we're looking at the daylight side of Jupiter, right? Maybe if we were looking at the nighttime side, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, fair point. So... And yeah, I think it's it's the same process. Jupiter has a lot of, in fact, Jupiter has a lot more magnetic um, bands and fields. I think it's one of the prominent radio sources in the nighttime sky. And uh, because of that, you can actually uh, have uh, these massive auroras uh, on Jupiter. Like in that image on on slide 19, I think that they've just superimposed or superposed the uh, the, the aurora that, that they observed with, I think it was the Juno spacecraft mm. anyway. Nearby Jupiter, we have uh, lots of asteroids. So in between um, Mars, so we have 
Mercury, Venus, inside our orbit, then we have the Earth, then we have Mars, and then outside of Mars, we have um, the asteroid belt. Now, the asteroid belt isn't like what we saw in Star Wars, like you can't like go and dodge asteroids as you fly through with your spaceship. If you were, if you were standing on an asteroid um, and you looked out, you might be able to see like one other asteroid, and it would just look like, like another, another one of the hundreds of stars in the nighttime sky kind of thing. They're that far apart, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The the scale of our solar system is quite large. You know, it it's not that dense in terms of like your comparison to Star Wars is is a good one. It's certainly not like that. Yeah, and then sort of in the orbit of Jupiter, though, we have Trojans, Greek, and Hilda asteroids. Um, there, there's probably even more than that 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 they discovered. But um, you know that there's there's these asteroids that are sort of held in place. Uh, in part because of the gravitational influence of uh, of Jupiter in in our solar system, some sort of are pushed ahead, and some are sort of pushed behind, and then some are going to be opposite the uh, the uh, the planet in uh, in in the sky, and so they just kind of move around um, in these somewhat harmonious orbits. Although every once in a while something will collide with Jupiter. For example, um, back in the early '90s, we had Shoemaker Elite Nine. Uh, collide with uh, collide with uh, Jupiter, and this was uh, a comet that was discovered, um, and the comet had broken apart. And uh, I think there was uh, nine or more pieces of it. No, anyway, there there were several pieces of it. And they they you know gradually made impact on Jupiter over the course of uh, of a couple weeks. In it was like July of ninety three or ninety four or something like that. Do you remember the year? No, it was well before, like I was into astronomy with a, with my own telescope, you know, it was, it was well before that. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that was one of those things that really caught my attention. And I remember watching that and they had, they had shots on the news and that of amateur astronomers, um, looking up at the nighttime sky through their telescopes and, and observing this through their telescopes while they were being interviewed and kind of giving these visual descriptions of it. And I remember thinking, man, I want to be one of these people, <laughs> you know, yeah, who's, yeah. who's able to have an instrument and to be able to, to see these type of things um, happening in the nighttime sky for myself. So yeah, I was, I was really kind of spurred on to say, Hey, wait a second. Like um, I'd kind of been doing astronomy for like very casually for a year or so at that point, just with binoculars or whatever. But then uh then after that, I was I was getting a telescope. Right, there was no there was no two ways about it. it took me a couple of years to get one, but, but I was getting a telescope at that point for sure. Um, did you know that that like Saturn, Jupiter also has rings? Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, a number of planets in the solar system do have rings. Um, yeah, it's not that uncommon. It's just none of them are you know as uh, dense and reflective as what Saturn has. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it also has rings, but like you can't see these visually or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite a few other, quite a few other moons. I remember last last time I checked, it had like ninety odd moons. Might have a hundred moons by now around Jupiter, uh, but most of them are really small. The last one discovered visually was uh, Almathea, which was discovered by Barnard in uh, the eighteen nineties using the Lick Telescope there on Hamilton, uh, outside of uh, San Francisco. I've been to Mount Hamilton. <laughs> it's quite the place. Pretty cool. I've never been there. Never been there. Yeah. Barnard's home. Unfortunately, there was a, there was a fire last year, the year before, and it, it burned down the place that he lived in while he was there, which is uh, unfortunate. But uh, yeah, I went and in, in true style, I got up, I got up late and I was going with a, a couple of friends and it took us a while to get organized. And I think we like when, I don't know what we were doing. We were just disorganized. And we ended up up there after the, the tours and there wasn't a public observing night the day that we could go. Um, but we decided to, to venture on anyway. And we got up there and it was like, it was like in February or something. And there was still snow. It had snow. Typically you don't think of snow in California and um, up there um, we kind of stopped and get out of the car and um, we could hear like the, you know, I was kind of disappointed because we had missed the tour but as we as we stood there at like a public look off or whatever, um, the domes all started opening. You could hear them. It was that was so cool. <laughs> it was really cool to be up there. But anyway, um, but you can only see those for Galleon. 
uh, moons through through the telescope or binoculars. And so speaking of rings, um, we'll move along to uh, to Saturn here. So uh, what do you, what do you know about observing Saturn, Shane? You know quite a bit. Um, yeah, well, the uh, there's a lot to consider when you look at Saturn. Number one is just the ring angle um, that changes every year, and there's more favorable times in uh, Saturn's um, um, orbit around the Sun, where you know the rings are more. Uh, I wouldn't say face on, but I guess maybe face on towards us. And we're now approaching a point where Saturn's rings will be edge on to us and will appear as just kind of a straight line, which is a really neat observation. Um, so there's the, the angle of the rings, and then there's the detail within the rings. Uh, there's the prominent Cassini division, which modest telescopes will reveal. Uh, there's the Aniki division, and there might even be another division where you typically need much larger aperture uh, of a telescope to see those visually. Yep. Um, there's cloud banding on Saturn. It's subtle, you know, it's not quite as, uh, stark as what it appears on Jupiter. Um, but there is some variations in the banding that you can observe. Um, and some people have reported seeing some storms on Saturn, which appears kind of like white streaks or white dots. And, yep. um, then there's like the, the hexagon pattern at the pole that, um, I'm not sure if that's a visual observation or if that's more with the astrophotography, but, um, you know, and then there's some moons, you can see some of Saturn's moons as well through modest telescopes. Yeah. So Titan, I think is, is the easiest moon to see. Like we were looking at mm -hmm. last night and my wife looked in and, and she was like, Oh, Hey, what's that star next to it? I, I actually looked and I couldn't, couldn't see it at first. And then, um, we put a little bit more power on and, and yeah, you can see, yeah, that's, that's Titan. That's a, a moon around, uh, around Saturn and Titan's neat because I think it was about 10 years ago when the Cassini spacecraft was there that released the Hugens probe and it went down through through the atmosphere and, and made all kinds of great discoveries of uh of of Titan. And I mean it, it's a moon, but it's got its own atmosphere and methane lakes and hydrocarbons and all, all like mountain ranges and all kinds of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting world. And then we have uh, things like um, you know, the other moons like, uh, Tethys, Dione and Enceladus. And I think Enceladus gives off some of the material that ends up, uh, in, in the ring system itself. But if we were, if we were looking at Saturn and sort of compared to the earth, it's, it's kind of a similar thing where, um, where earth is, is about, uh, well, it would take about 10 earths, I think, to pattern across the surface of Jupiter um, Saturn, I think it would take like five or six, but then if you factor in the rings, it would even be, uh, more than, more than that, uh, that 10 earth, uh, diameter size. So it is, it is quite, uh, quite large, uh, right up in the same realm of, of size through the telescope. Uh, once you factor those rings in, <laughs> excuse me, as Jupiter and, uh, you know, like you were saying, those storms on the poles, I, I I don't know. I think, I think you're right. I think some people have managed to image them from earth. I know that um, the Cassini spacecraft was, uh, was able to see them, but when Galileo observed Jupiter in 1610, he only could see what he referred to as ears. He couldn't quite see um, the, the ring system itself. He could only see sort of uh, them in part, because like you were saying, originally um, sometimes those rings can be more edge on. Uh, which is unfortunately the case for Galileo when he was trying to uh, take a look at it. But this year for us, the rings are well, well angled towards us. They look spectacular, right? They do. Yeah. You know, and maybe one other thing I forgot to mention that you can observe on Saturn is the shadow that the rings cast against the disc. Now oh, that yeah. is dependent on the ring angle, um, but that is uh, observable this year. Yeah, I was, uh, I was looking at that uh, last night and you can actually see that the rings are, are two different tones, like the inner mm -hmm. ring is a paler tone and the, the outer ring past the Cassini division is uh, almost like a rusty uh, tone. It's, uh, it's really quite remarkable uh, to see those. And they, they think that, you know, um, the reason for the rings is, is still um, under investigation. But uh, one thing that they've come to understand after, after Cassini's visit and perhaps even before is that is that the little moons, there's all kinds of these little moons around Saturn. 
and uh, it helps to kind of keep the rings in their shape. And they call these like the shepherd moons. And <clears throat> when, excuse me, when, when Cassini was there, it was, uh, it was actually witness to perhaps the formation of a new moon or, or new moons um, that looked like might be beginning to congregate out of some of the uh, material that that's in the ring. So it's uh, sort of fascinating to think about uh, the fact that those rings are are dynamic and new moons may be forming up at any time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, speaking of little things, let's just talk briefly about uh, uh, about meteors um, because that, that's often uh, a question that I have when I'm when I'm teaching the classes. What what are meteors and when can you see uh, meteor showers, Shane? So what, what is what is a meteor? When you see that thing streaking through the night sky, what are we looking at there? Well, most, most common ones. So, you know, these are often referred to as shooting stars. Um, when you see that, um, likely what it was is a, a, a grain of sand, you know, not much larger than what you'd find on a typical beach. Um, that is entering the Earth's atmosphere and burning up upon entry and emitting a lot of energy. And, you know, you see this streak of light. Um, Now, you can get brighter meteors, and that just means it's a larger piece of matter that's entering the Earth's atmosphere and burning up. Um, Some of those can be referred to as fireballs. Um, and they, they light up the night sky almost like it's daytime for a real brief moment. Um, and sometimes we'll even leave trails behind that last for a few seconds. And, um, the best time to observe these meteors is during a meteor shower. And there's a number of them throughout the year. And, uh, typically, you know, all of these, or most of these are related to comets. Um, so what has happened is a comet has passed through our solar system And just by chance, that path is through Earth's orbit. So the comet, as it's traveling, leaves behind debris. You know, it's melting uh, as it's getting closer to the sun because it's made of like ice and rock and, you know, other sort of solar system formation things. So it's melting and shedding some of itself off. And then, you know, so comet comes and goes, leaves this stuff behind. Then as Earth passes through that debris field, you get a meteor shower or a lot of this debris is now, you know, sort of being forced to enter earth's atmosphere and burn up. And uh, yeah. that is essentially the story of meteors. That, that is like a perfect, perfect way to, to explain it. Um, and just to kind of reinforce a couple of the, the things that you mentioned there is that meteors only appear for a brief instant. Um, but comets, they can hang in our sky for um, days, weeks, maybe even a couple months or a few months. Yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on how bright the comet is, like uh, there, there always are comets up there. It's just a lot of the times they're, they're quite dim and we can't really observe them visually. Um, but yeah, comets will take a lot more time. And, uh, you know, the, there's a distinction too, between a meteor and a meteorite. So a meteor burns up in the atmosphere A meteorite survives that and actually falls to the surface of the earth. And, um, yeah. uh, just a, a, sm- a quick note on that distinction. Now, and I'm just thinking about this while you were talking, um, you actually know quite a bit about meteors because you've you've got a few meteorites. You're a bit of a meteorite collector. Yeah. I went through a phase where I was collecting meteorites. Um, there's a few different classes, which like classes or categories of meteorites. And, um, what, what is important about that is, uh, well, there's probably a lot of things that's important, but for me, it's the aesthetic. Some of them are exceptionally beautiful. Um, some meteorites, uh, I think it's called palisite, if I'm not mistaken, has uh, glass essentially on the interior of it. So when you get a slice of it, you get this really unique and ornate, um, you know, uh, object. And, and what's cool is, is you're holding a piece of the solar system, you know, that is not terrestrial. It's not from earth, uh, which I find, you know, quite fascinating. Um, and then the other aspect of meteorites that really got me interested is that, Sometimes a meteorite that lands on Earth is actually from another planet in our solar system. Um, so what can happen is, is something can impact Mars, for example. And when that impact happens, some of Mars's surface, you know, there's a massive explosion or release of energy. Some of Mars's uh, uh, material is ejected into space. And then 
it can land on earth occasionally. So on earth, there are confirmed meteorites that originated that was basically the surface of Venus, our moon and Mars. And uh, you, you can collect those. And, and again, that's such a cool thing to me that you can hold a piece of another planet or our moon. And um, I don't know, there, there, there's not a lot to look at in terms of the meteorite. It's just more of a, you know, I guess a romantic thought of the origin of that you know, piece of material and, and that you now have it in your hand. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, now in the summer we have uh, the Perseids, uh, of course, uh, we're, we're now a couple of weeks past their, their peak there. Um, but we have the Geminids, uh, coming up in December, of course, uh, usually by December 13th or 14th, um, it can be a little bit chilly to, to go out and observe, um, anything, in the nighttime sky. Um, but, you know, people can. Uh, one thing that I that I recommend, and a, and a person who, who had attended my class before um, took this to heart, and they went out and bought a really good recliner. And uh, we actually went out this year to observe the uh, the uh, the Perseids together with, with a variety of other people. And they brought the recliner. And so they had like the recliner and, and something warm to kind of drape over themselves. And I thought that that was really cool. So having a nice comfortable chair, you know, you don't need a telescope or binoculars or really anything um, to see a meteor star. You just kind of need to know when it's happening and know that the moon is not in the sky. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're one of the easiest things to observe if, if um, the conditions line up, like you just mentioned. Yeah. And like you were saying, the, uh, the meteors, they come from comets and we had a pretty spectacular comet uh, called Neowise uh, last year, but uh we usually don't get bright comets every year, unfortunately, do we? No, no, those are quite rare. And if if we ever get another comet like Neowise, um, it's you have to make that a priority to observe yeah. it um, if it's in your hemisphere, uh, because they are so rare. Um, they just don't happen that often. So um, you know, when when Neowise flared up, you know, you and I that we kind of dropped all other observing. <laughs> Yeah. And that's all we really focused on um, because, yeah. you know, you, you typically only have maybe a week or two where they're at their brightest and um, yeah. you you know, you really have to get out there and, and check it out. Yeah. And what, what you see, what, what, what do they look like just to your eye? What did Neowise look like? Shane? Well, if you, to me, if you just imagine like what, if you looked up comet in the dictionary, what would the image be? Well, that's what Neowise looked like to me. It was, you know, this kind of a dense, bright nucleus that was larger, and then a, a tail that extended quite a distance from it, but the tail tapered off to kind of a point behind it. And uh, it was just your quintessential comet. Um, and not all comets appear that way. Uh, no. Comet Holmes quite a few years ago was just a big, and I mean big, fuzzy ball like it almost yeah. looked like a, a like a globular cluster in a way in in a in the sky just a, a globular where you're not able to resolve individual stars um so yeah. so they they can be different in appearance too and these these bright ones you can actually see them well with your unaided eye even from the city i could see comet neowise mm -hmm. and and if you got a pair of binoculars um that can often give you the best view of brighter comets eh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The wider field, um, for those big ones is, is awesome. Yeah. And if you have a telescope, it can be neat because you can actually see that, uh, that nucleus, uh, core. And there's, um, the big thing that comets are known for is tails. And what's happening here is you have a, you have a semi-permeable rocky, icy body that's made out of, uh, an extremely dense material. And that comes into the inner solar system. Um, as it comes into the inner solar system, it gets heated by the sun, it begins ejecting material, and then that material catches the light of the sun and reflects it back to us. So they're not generating their own light, they're just uh, reflecting the light back to us from the sun, but they, they appear in the sky to be um, really big and large, and certainly on the scale of the solar system, they actually are, but the actual uh, hard surface that's emanating all this, all this material into space um, is actually sometimes only on the order of a, of a few miles or maybe a couple dozen miles across uh, at most. And like you said, there's a nucleus that's like that main ball. And then there's the coma, which is like the big round area of material that's being ejected around that ball. And then we have the uh, dust tails and the gas tails 
that are coming out. You'll see that the dust tails, they're going to be the easy ones to see. And they come out of the comet. They more or less point away from the sun, but they also go in orbit around the sun. And then it's if, if Earth ever crosses the orbit of any of those old tails, because that, that material just perpetually stays in orbit around the sun, that's when we get the meteor showers. I think that's kind of a good way to, to wrap around to it. Yeah, yeah, good, good description. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of that's kind of it, Shane. I think that uh, that we've we've done our part to explain what can be seen um, as far as planets uh, in the nighttime sky. Right now, Jupiter and uh, and Saturn are sort of in opposite corners of the constellation Capricornus, and a great spot to uh, to check out where they are in the sky is to go to something like SkyMaps.com and and download one of their charts. You can go to one of the reputable magazines like Sky and Telescope has a great um, free uh, open section on, uh, on where to find the planets uh, in the nighttime sky. And if, if people want to really learn um, how to find everything else in the nighttime sky, uh, you can keep listening to our podcast, of course. Uh, and, and I do think people uh, should buy a copy of Terrence Dickinson's uh, Nightwatch course. We have no affiliation with any of these groups, but um, they just put out uh, tremendous uh, resources. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally agree. Um, so good recommendation. Anything else left to add to this episode 148? That is all, my friend. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks to everybody uh, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this two-part special on the planets and stars of summer. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>